Hello and welcome back once again to the Yeshua Judaism series of podcasts. And this will be Antichrist 1, Part 3. And we left off in the last discussion reading from Luke chapter 21. We read the Gospel of Luke chapter 21, verses 5 through 27. And if you have your Bible, you may want to turn to that area of Scripture and follow along. Now here, we were going to continue with some detailed explanation and exegesis of various regions within that reading, which we did in the last part, in part two. So we're going to continue on here, and we're going to first begin discussing in detail verses five through nine. Again, this is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 21. The Signs of the End of the Age, verses 5 through 9. And I'll read them again. Now, while some were speaking about the temple, now here this is, these are the disciples speaking, while some were speaking about the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and offerings, Jesus, or Yeshua, said, As for these things that you are gazing at, the days will come when not one stone will be left on another. All will be torn down. So they asked him, Teacher, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that these things are about to take place? He said, Watch out that you are not misled. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is near. Do not follow them. And when you hear of wars and rebellions, do not be afraid, for these things must happen first, but the end will not come at once. And that completes the reading of the Gospel of Luke, chapter 21, verses 5 through 7. All right. The first thing to note is that the entire conversation, which I just read, began with a question about what Yeshua had said about the temple. The disciples wanted Yeshua to explain that specific statement from Yeshua, the statement regarding the temple. Yeshua does so, and then expands far beyond the context of the original inquiry into prophecies of things to come, which extend to the very end of this age and the beginning of the Messianic age, which will be ushered in by his return. The first section of his response is among the most general of the prophecies in chapter 21 of Luke's gospel and have no precise time frame for fulfillment. You will note, first, Yeshua began with the very general warning about many who would come, quote, in my or in his name, End quote. Second, he told of coming wars and rebellions, which is very general. There have always been wars and rebellions. Thirdly, he then gave a notable clue as to the timing when he said these things would happen. Notice he said first, or he said at the first, or he may have said before. Each of those statements provide a clue as to the timing. However, 
Was he referring to just the sentence about wars and rebellions, or everything else which is found in verse 8? I believe it to be both, since both began to happen at that time and are still happening today. And quickly, verse 8, he said, this is from verse 8, he said, Watch out that you are not misled, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is near. Do not follow them. That is, in my opinion, a general prophecy that is basically has no specific time frame, perhaps, in my opinion. And finally, you notice that my opinion is supported by his direct statement that said they, quote, will not come at once. The implication is that those events did not signify that the end was soon to come or at the same time, that is, all at once but that instead those events in particular would continue to happen over a long period of time. In other words, Yeshua was most likely indicating that they would begin as one of the first events, yet continue indefinitely. Indeed, history, the book of Acts in particular, solidly implies that there were people not truly among his first followers who began to go out in his name soon after his resurrection. There was also unrest, rebellions, defiance, insurgencies, and ultimately war between Rome and Israel that were all percolating even during Yeshua's lifetime. There were even rebellions and unrest among the Jewish people themselves. All of this is proven from the historic record and happened, or more precisely, began to happen during the lifetimes of most of the disciples who were there and who asked the original question. Their lifetimes, in many cases, lasted right up to the destruction of Jerusalem and the Second Temple. They were, therefore, among the first things, yet the end, as Yeshua said, did not come at once. So these, this particular area of the gospel, verses 5 through 9, he indicates things that were indeed among the first things to happen, yet the end, as he stated, did not come and would not come at once. Now let's continue to verses 10 through 19 from Luke's gospel. This mainly involves or discusses the persecution of his disciples, the ones that ask him the question. In reading from starting with verse 10, excuse me, Then he said to them, Nation will rise up in arms against nation, and kingdom against, against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and famines and plagues in various places. And there will be terrifying sights and great signs from heaven. But before all this, now notice this, this is where it really gets into persecution of his disciples. But before all this, and this is verse 12, they will seize you, notice you, and persecute you. Who is the you? The you is the disciples. Handing you over to the synagogues and prisons. You will be brought before kings and governors because of my name. 
this will be a time for you to serve as witnesses. Therefore, be resolved not to rehearse ahead of time how to make your defense. For I will give you the words along with the wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents, brothers, relatives, and friends, and they will have some of you put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of my name, yet not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Again, that's from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 21, verses 10 through 19. Now, in my opinion, verses 10 and 11, which I just read, belong to the more general previous section of the reasons, you know, for the same reasons that I described previously. Reading again, 10 and 11. Then he said to them, Nation will rise up in arms against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and famines and plagues in various places, and there will be terrifying sights and great signs from heaven. That obviously, in my opinion, refers to more of a general prophecy that has no specific time frame. It is in verse 12 that he said, as I noted earlier, but before all this. So obviously, those things would be happening after what he was now about to say. Those things would continue on happening, That those things he mentions in verses 10 and 11. So, as I said, in my opinion, verses 10 and 11 do indeed belong to maybe the previous discussion which I just had and which I just said that refers to general prophecies. Obviously, nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom, earthquakes, famines, plagues, etc., have been occurring continuously since before then, since then, and after Yeshua spoke those words. Therefore, I will not waste time on those two verses since they are clearly a general prophecy with no uniquely specific time of fulfillment. Verse 12, however, begins an important section of Yeshua's prophecy that applied specifically to the disciples or apostles and earliest followers, the very earliest followers, those of the first century, and possibly limited to those to the people of the first century. In these verses, Yeshua begins to transfer focus of his prophecy directly to the disciples themselves, as well as to his original followers in general. You will note that he stated, before all this, which indicates that he was about that what he was about to say applies to a particular time in history immediately following his death and resurrection. He then directly addressed what was to occur to them, that is to the disciples, the disciples and his earliest followers. This is plainly indicated by his repeated use of the pronouns you and your, and is an undeniable grammatical fact. As will be seen in the next section of his prophecy that will be read, the you and your pronouns quickly progress from originating, excuse me, from originally referring to only the disciples or apostles and the very first followers 
to instead referring to all of his earliest original followers who lived during and shortly after the time of the disciples. It is decidedly evident to anyone who knows the book of Acts, which is the most unadulterated history available of the earliest followers of Yeshua, as well as anyone who is aware of secular history of the first few centuries of the common era. So if you know your history, if you, if you understand the book of Acts, and if you understand if you look at Judaic history and what happened within the, that same time frame within Judaism's history, you will see that much that he says here did indeed happen, and it happened during that time frame and is therefore limited to that time frame. Finally, the definite, discrete application of those, to those original followers continues all the way into verse 24. In fact, Luke's rendition of Yeshua's response to the disciples' specific question largely presents a more limited and specific answer that doesn't deviate as much as we see in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark. Now, and a very, a very important side note here before continuing. Those who claim that deviation or differences in the recording of various New Testament events is evidence that the New Testament is false or corrupt should realize, and probably actually do, that just as with other records of history, deviation is actually useful since it allows individual components of the events from differing perspectives to be seen and to be com combined into a more thorough picture. The combination provides the construction of a much more accurate understanding of the history being discussed. Therefore, anyone who suggests that normal deviation within the New Testament seen from distinctly separate individual writers somehow proves it to be false are either biased hypocrites ignorant, disingenuous, or a combination of all three. Possibly the worst people are Judaism-based countermissionaries, since Judaism's material contains precisely the same sort of deviations and far more of them. Now continuing with our discussion. I will not delve into the details of what Yeshua prophesied of Yeshua's prophecies in verses 12 through 19. The book of Acts and secular history prove that everything he said would occur within those verses did occur. The history recorded in Acts, taken by itself, proves examples of partial fulfillment of everything Yeshua said would happen in verses 12 through 19. I do, however, want to draw attention to the portions of his words which mentioned synagogues among the elements by which they would be persecuted. Furthermore, notice that he mentions they would be betrayed by close acquaintances, including family members. And who is he speaking of here? He is speaking of early followers who would be living within the near-term relative to time he spoke. That is, he was speaking of people who would be living within decades and at, at, at most a couple of centuries. This synagogue component of the persecution endured by Yeshua's early followers is a primary evidential proof I wish to emphasize to support what I will shortly detail from Matthew's record. 
and there's much history out there. It's just, it's a fact. The earliest followers of Yeshua were purposely driven from the synagogues. Go look up the Burkhat Hamanin curse. I discuss it in other audios within the Yeshua Judaism podcast. The Burkhat Hamanin curse was created by the rabbis who rejected Yeshua, by the the creators of rabbinic Judaism. They created that curse for the specific purpose, primarily, of driving Yeshua's followers out of the synagogues. This happened, people. This is a fact. And even Judaism, even Akiva or Rabbinic Judaism, does not deny it. Now, continuing with verses 20 through 24, here he's discussing the desolation of Jerusalem. So, starting in verse 20, But when you, see, once again, we're, He's referring, he's addressing the disciples. This would happen during their time. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Now notice, a lot of times people will read that and they will apply it to the end of days. No, it applied to them, to to the people to whom he was speaking. He said, when you, disciples see Jerusalem surrounded by armies. And guess what? It happened. Continuing, so we need, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Those who are inside the city must depart. Those who are out in the country must not enter it, because these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing their babies in those days. For there will be great distress on earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away as captives among all nations. Jerusalem will be trampled down by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. The intent of this discussion is, and that completes the reading, the intent of this discussion is not to discuss the history of Jerusalem's destruction. Therefore, I will not delve into proving these verses to be what occurred. Any simple study of history proves it to be a precise and accurate prophecy that Yeshua gave. In fact, his prophecy has, has seen continual fulfillment up to this very day since The times of the Gentiles, or nations, are not yet fulfilled. When that time comes, and it is very soon, Jerusalem will be freed permanently from her oppressors, just as Yeshua stated. Now, again, verses 20 through 23 especially Those passages refer to what has already happened. This happened, those verses happened, when Jerusalem was surrounded by Roman armies and the siege of Jerusalem occurred and Jerusalem was destroyed along with the second temple. That is what Yeshua was talking about. He was not referring to the end-of-day scenario that many false teachers are promoting out there. Verses 20 through 23 already happened. Odd, is it not, 
how Judaism-based opponents of Yeshua and the New Testament never spend any time on material such as these verses, since they prove Yeshua's prophetic power, as well as support the credibility of the New Testament as a whole. Yeshua said this. This was recorded long before, approximately two decades, slightly under, perhaps two decades before the temple was going to be destroyed, and Yeshua was already prophesying it. Now, in the Torah itself, the test of a prophet is that the prophet's prophecy must occur and must transpire precisely as prophesied. Well, that is exactly what happened. What Yeshua said would happen, happened in precisely the manner which he described, thus proving to the chagrin of those within Akiva Judaism who despised the New Testament and Yeshua, proving him to be indeed a true prophet of God. But you will never hear them say that. You will never hear anyone within the counter-missionary movement of Akiva or Rabbinic Judaism. You will never hear them admit that Yeshua proved himself to be a true prophet because they hate him. They despise him. And within their material, it is literally taught that Yeshua is boiling in human feces in hell forever. People would be shocked to know the depth of absolute dark hatred that Akiva or Rabbinic Judaism has for Yeshua. It is, frankly, stunning. Now, we'll pick up where we left off with verse 25, and we'll discuss verses 25 through 27 of Luke chapter 21. Here he discusses the arrival of the Son of Man, which of course is him, his second coming, his return. So verse 25, and there will be, now Now this is referring to a future time. This is referring to these last days, okay? And there will be signs in the sun and moon and stars, And on the earth, nations will be in distress, anxious over the roaring of the sea and the surging waves. How many of you are aware of the the fear people have of the earth dying, global warming, the seas are rising? You have, I mean, I'm not saying I agree or disagree with that. All I'm saying is what he's saying here will happen, is happening, and actually has been happening for decades. So continuing on, so there will be signs in the sun and moon and stars, and on the earth nations will be in distress, anxious, which of course that's what the environmental people are, they're very anxious, over the roaring of the sea and the surging of the waves, waves plus of course are anxious over hurricanes and typhoons, correct? Continuing, people will be fainting from fear and from the expectation of what is coming on the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see, now notice, then, okay, they will see the Son of Man arriving in a cloud with power and great glory. But when these things begin to happen, stand up and raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. So there is coming a time very soon, 
when we're going to start seeing some very scary things, all right? As with verses 20 through 24 read previously, I will not delve into these verses since they are outside the scope of the article. I will only say that these verses, Luke chapter 21, verses 25 through 28, are being fulfilled now in our present day with accelerated frequency. Therefore, get ready. Prepare yourself. Repent so that you will be ready for Messiah's return, which is coming very soon. Now, I'll return to Matthew's Gospel, with the benefit of what we just studied in Luke's record, in Luke's Gospel. Matthew states that many false prophets will arise, which refers to the fact that a very large number of such false teachers was intended in Messiah's prophecy, as we said earlier. Indeed, there have been and are a very large number of false prophets. But perhaps more importantly, notice the immediate context in which those false prophets are mentioned in the Gospel of Matthew. Yeshua states in Matthew 24, verses 10 through 13, Then many will be led into sin, and they will betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many. And because lawlessness will increase so much, the love of man, or excuse me, the love of many will grow cold. But the person who endures to the end will be saved. And notice from other podcasts, I proved the term lawlessness, anomia, literally means Torahlessness, literally means contempt for or violation of Torah, which Christianity opposes. Christianity is an anti-Torah religion. And he says, because lawlessness will increase so much, the love of many, many, many people, their love will grow cold. Indeed it has. The arrangement of the events depicted by Yeshua is noteworthy. First, he says people will be led into sin or transgression of Torah. Then they will betray and hate one another. Next, he states how a large number of false prophets, those claiming to speak for God, will then appear and deceive a very large number of people. Notice the progression here, people. This is chronological. Finally, because lawlessness or Torahlessness will increase, the love of many will grow cold. As I said earlier, the Greek word for lawlessness is anomia, which we prove in the article, Does Christianity Truly Follow Christ? We prove in that discussion that it means contempt or violation of Torah. And you can go back and you can listen to that podcast or YouTube material, if you wish. Does Christianity truly follow Christ? I prove the answer of that to be no. But go listen to that, and I get into more detail regarding the term anomia, and that it does indeed mean 
contempt for or violation of Torah, which, by the way, Christianity literally teaches. As an anti-Torah religious system, it literally teaches anomia. It literally teaches exactly what Yeshua says will cause the love of many to grow cold. Okay, first, so I gave those three noteworthy points. First, he says many will be led into sin and that they will betray and hate. Here I'm going to discuss Akiva or Rabbinic Judaism's profound role in the rise of Antichrist. Judaism's role in the rise of Antichrist, Akiva Judaism. Note that Yeshua qualified the betrayal and hatred that would be seen with the term one another. He said one another. Those earliest followers of Yeshua were dominated by Jews. In fact, the first non-Jewish Jewish follower did not arrive on the scene, as far as we know, until Cornelius, which is detailed in the Acts of the Apostles. The one another Yeshua mentions refers primarily to fellow Jews, which no doubt included close acquaintances and even family members who ratted out or informed against their own friends and relatives who were followers of Yeshua. This harkens back to Luke's account in Luke chapter 21, verse 16, in which Yeshua is recorded as saying, You will be betrayed even by parents, brothers, relatives, and friends. Now, friend, even today, even now, and all throughout history within Rabbinic Judaism or Akiva Judaism, this happened. The worst thing an individual can do in rabbinic Judaism is become a believer in Yeshua. And when that happens, they are betrayed. They are literally kicked out. They will even have what's called a kiddish. They will even have, or they will even have a, to use a common term, like a funeral. They become dead to the family members if they embrace Yeshua. So the betrayal of Yeshua's followers within Judaism by fellow Jews has occurred ever since the first century, and it is even occurring now. That is something that Judaism considers despicable. They would rather a family member become an atheist or a Muslim or a homosexual or, or you name it. They would rather their family member become anything other than a follower of Yeshua. When they become a follower of Yeshua, they are kicked out. That is considered the worst thing a Jew can do within Judaism. And that's, to me, that's horrible. But, but it's true. And you will find much material, many examples where this is true. They don't deny it. So, continuing on, how was the betrayal Yeshua spoke about how was that betrayal and hatred manifested? Well, again, here is one definite way proven by the facts of history. And this dovetails with what I just said. Soon after Yeshua's resurrection, as more and more Jews joined Yeshua Judaism, that is, began to follow, follow Yeshua, 
the pure, corrected, and reformed Torah faith brought down from heaven by Yeshua. Soon after that, soon after Yeshua's resurrection, extremely virulent anti-Yeshua segments of the early, earliest Pharisees who despised the God-is-impartial message of Yeshua Judaism realized something had to be done. Among those anti-Yeshua Pharisees were the Tanaim, that is, the supremely revered rabbis, the most revered rabbis within Judaism, whose opinions are recorded in the Mishnah and whom Judaism, practically speaking, views as infallible men and indeed worship basically as gods. They are literally idols. Now, they won't admit that with that within rabbinic Judaism, but they are. They're basically gods. The Takanot and Gezerot, the, the traditions or legalistic dictates of the rabbis are considered not simply equal to the Torah of God, but you will find locations in much information within Judaism's material where it is considered worse to violate what the rabbis dictate than it is to violate what God himself dictates in the written Torah. And these Tanaim, these greatest of the sages of Judaism, many of them were literally contemporaries they literally lived, or some of them lived, during the time of Yeshua's earliest followers. Possibly all of them did. Rabbi Akiva, for instance, who is considered the most supreme, that's why I call rabbinic Judaism Akiva Judaism, was alleg allegedly born in the year 16 CE. So he would have known, literally, with firsthand knowledge, Everything that we read about in the New Testament, he would have known about Yeshua. He would have known about all the apostles. He may have even disputed with them. It may be, he may have been those that we read about within the New Testament that disputed with Yeshua and the apostles. The same can be said with, with Rabbi uh, Yochanan ben Zakkai. He also was a contemporary. He was a, a Nasi. He was in the Sanhedrin at the time the Second Temple was destroyed. And I could go on. Basically, these people whom, whom Akiva Judaism or, or Rabbinic Judaism revere, these greatest of their sages, would have been literal firsthand, they would have had firsthand knowledge, or at most secondhand knowledge, of Yeshua himself and all the followers and everything we read about in the book of Acts. They knew about it. They were there, people. Their desire for power, that is, those early Pharisees who hated Yeshua and his followers, their desire for power and control was being directly threatened by the popularity of Yeshua Judaism, of the followers of Yeshua. Therefore, they had to stem the flow of Jews they had to stop the flow of Jews into the less burdensome, less elitist, and far more loving and inclusive Yeshua Judaism faith system. They wanted to stop that because it was a threat, people. Don't let a rabbi lie to you. Don't let a Jew lie to you. It was a major threat. The fall of Yeshua was a major threat to Judaism at that time. It was a, primarily to the power to the dictatorial tyranny of the rabbis, they were severely threatened by Yeshua, so they took action. 
Those fierce opponents of Yeshua, Judaism, therefore officially, literally, and permanently codified the betrayal and hatred of their Jewish brethren who revered Yeshua into their completely new rabbinic Judaism or Akiva Judaism religion. Note, Yeshua Judaism, the faith of and in Yeshua, actually predates rabbinic Judaism, and I prove that and discuss that in the podcast in which I discuss and contrast Yeshua Judaism versus Orthodox Judaism. Now, those early despisers and haters and opponents of Yeshua among the Pharisees, the Tanaim, did this during the reign of then-Nasi, or chief rabbi, Rabbi Gamaliel II, which was the following century, early in the second century. They did it by adding a vindictive and hateful curse, and I mentioned this earlier briefly, a curse against Yeshua's followers and others. They added it to the Shemonei Israel or Amidai prayer, the standing prayer as it is sometimes called. They added a curse to that prayer. The Amidah prayer, a prayer of central importance in rabbinic Judaism, possibly the most important, is said daily by devout Jews and is a major component of synagogue service then and now. The hateful curse, the Berkhat Hamanin curse, which was added under the reign of Rabbi Gamaliel II, was added to force Yeshua's followers out of the synagogues and as a means to identify those who followed Yeshua so they could be persecuted. So, how did it accomplish its goal? How did the Berkhat Hamanin curse accomplish its goal of ridding the synagogues of Yeshua's followers? Now, remember, this was probably going on in some synagogues during the time of the book of Acts, which was prior to it officially being added to synagogue liturgy. So it was almost certainly done in the book of Acts, a curse. So what happened in the early 2nd century, once following the Second Temple destruction, when a few rabbis escaped Jerusalem, the most notable being Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, who faked his death just to get out of, out of Jerusalem, betrayed his own people, which Judaism seems to think is perfectly fine, betrayed his people, took, a, took some of his, his elitist followers and buddies with him, and they fled to Yavne, Israel, where they set up a Sanhedrin later, and ultimately Gamaliel II, who is the grandson of Gamaliel I, or Gamaliel the Elder, whom Paul himself self-studied under. So Gamaliel II, under his leadership, they officially officially codified in synagogue liturgy the Burkhat Hamanin curse, but it was undoubtedly already being practiced, and we can read about it in the book of Acts, before it was officially done. All right? So that was just a quick side note. Acts proves this, and Jewish history itself supports the book of Acts completely, and they know it. So anyone who tells you this is not true, they're lying to you, or they're ignorant. Anyone who also tells you that the Burke Hotman curse 
was not actually targeting the early followers of Yeshua is, is a liar. They're blatant liars, or maybe they're also ignorant, because Judaism itself proves, and they admit that it was targeting the earliest followers of Yeshua. All right, so how did this curse achieve its goal of ridding synagogues of Yeshua's followers? Okay, first, the followers of Yeshua would not voice the portion of the prayer. Because, see, what happens in a synagogue is you pray together. You read the prayer, and everyone's praying the prayer out loud. They're going through the prayer. If they have a prayer book called a Siddur, which, by the way, did not exist at that time. It was They had just a very limited number of prayers. The Siddur itself did not even exist. The Siddur that you'll find in any synagogue and you can go find in a bookstore, that Siddur in its concurrent form, did not exist for centuries following the first century. But there were some prayers, and one of them, the most meaningful and the most important prayer in Judaism, is Shemonei Ezrei, which is what they added the curse to. So the followers of Yeshua would not voice, they would not read aloud the, por- the portion of the prayer in which the newly added curse was found, since to do so, would be pronouncing a severe curse upon themselves. So they're not going to curse themselves. Therefore, some, undoubtedly, some of the members, some of the early followers of Yeshua, simply ceased going to the synagogue so they wouldn't have to curse themselves. Secondly, of course, that means they were driven from the synagogue, right? So by, not, by deciding not to go, they basically were driven out because of that curse. But still, they were driven from the synagogues, just as the book of Acts says. Secondly, those who remained, those early followers of Yeshua who decided to remain within the synagogue, were identified or informed against by acquaintances, as well as by individuals within the synagogue who were tasked with observing the attendees as the prayer was being voiced aloud by the congregation. Anyone who was observed to not be voicing the curse portion of the prayer was cast out of the synagogue, since, obviously, they were followers of Yeshua or of the other groups whom the curse targeted. Both the New Testament and secular history record this casting out of the synagogues as a factual occurrence. It is verified within Judaism's own literature. Now notice, you would have they would be standing there in the synagogue, as you have in any synagogue or even a church today, probably standing with friends, probably seated next to friends and relatives. So they would stand to say this prayer and when the people around them, which included their friends and family members, when they would see that the, that the, the person was not voicing the curse part of the prayer, those acquaintances, those friends and family members would inform on them. Just like Yeshua said, they would be betrayed even by family members. This is one example of that. This is exactly where it happened. They would have been betrayed, just like Yeshua prophesied, exactly as he prophesied. 
Their family members would turn them in to the authorities, so to speak. They would inform on them. They would say, hey, he's not voicing the prayer, he, the curse. He's not voicing. He's one of them. Get him out of here. He's one of those Yeshua people. We don't want him here. And they would throw him out of the synagogues. That unconscionable and inexcusable curse, which literally wishes death and to be blotted out of the book of life towards Yeshua's followers and others whom they hated, constituted a massive betrayal and brutal, baseless hatred against fellow Jews, among whom were numerous followers of Yeshua. Amazingly, it was an act Yeshua prophesied exactly that would occur even before Yeshua Judaism, that is, the faith of and in Yeshua, had appeared following his resurrection. I would elaborate on the historic facts of the added curse within the Shemone Israel prayer in a separate discussion, God willing. It needs to be done, since there is now a growing effort to deceitfully rewrite history in order to cover up the extreme betrayal and hatred perpetuated by those rabbis and, other, and Jews who largely laid the first foundation stones upon which the later newly formed religion of Rabbinic Judaism or Akiva Judaism was constructed. However, since Judaism's own literature and rabbis clearly and often state that the purpose of the Berkat Hamanin curse was largely to force Yeshua's followers from the synagogues, the effort to cover it up will not succeed except among those who simply refuse to recognize the facts of history and who seem determined to excuse away any and all errors within rabbinic Judaism. The efforts of those deceitful people, in this case, shows that they will not hesitate to falsify the historic record. They will not hesitate to lie if it helps them oppose Yeshua and his followers. Now, at this point, I'm going to pause this Antichrist 2, part 3, and we're going to pick up in the next discussion the area of Yeshua's prophecy where he discusses the appearance of false prophets and how they will deceive many people. So join me in Antichrist 1, Part 4, where we will delve into the appearance of false prophets and how they would deceive many. Until then, thank you and goodbye.